When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose... Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Inauguration Day, March 4th, 1861. Newly sworn-in President Abraham Lincoln assumes his place on the Speaker's platform. Erected against the pillared backdrop of the U.S. Capitol, its iconic dome still half-completed. Weather today? Cool? cloudy and agreeable. Wearing a beard only three months old, Lincoln addresses the throngs before him, a sea of dark coats and top hats stretching further than his voice can possibly be heard. Nonetheless, Lincoln's urgent message will reach them and the nation at large, most importantly, the southern states now in the process of secession. Lincoln is clear and precise. It is his duty, he says, as president, to preserve the Union. But the man who will one day be known as the Great Emancipator declares he has no intention to threaten the Southern way of life, so long as those Southern states do not violate the Constitution, only moments before he'd sworn to protect. I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. The game of chess is underway. Next move is the South's. Abraham Lincoln is everywhere in American life. On the penny, the $5 bill. He's branded on buildings, automobiles, insurance companies, and children's toys. 
His speeches and letters are endlessly quoted. But why? Why does Lincoln consistently top the tables for best U.S. president? What were his motivations and beliefs in public and behind closed doors? In this three-part series, we talk with top experts about Lincoln's leadership in the Civil War, his rural origins, and his personal life. And today, the job he was most famous for, 16th President of the United States. It's Abraham Lincoln on American History Hit. The man, the myth, the president. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman with you. In this, the next installment of our twice-monthly presidential series, we are dedicating to this next commander-in-chief more time. Three episodes, in fact, because this is number 16, and 16 is Abraham Lincoln. Honest Abe, the rail splitter, the grand wrestler. He'd already earned a number of nicknames in time for his presidential campaign. More would certainly come. In November 1860, the dreaded period of Southern secession approached. That abysmal precipice so many had sought so long to avoid was a direct consequence of Lincoln's election and the apparent pivot the Union had made after so many years of compromise and prevarication. Suddenly, it was Lincoln, and suddenly the time had come to square off over the issue of slavery in all its moral and political turpitude. A few months later, in February 1861, the Confederate States of America was officially launched, and it would be up to Abraham Lincoln to design and lead the Union response to this crooked enterprise. No American president in history has had to cope with such a fundamental national crisis, and he would do so right out of the box on the day of his inauguration, March 4, 1861. Six weeks later, on April 12th, Confederate artillery fired upon Fort Sumter in South Carolina, and the Civil War was underway. Today, despite our daily dirge of division and distress, it's near impossible for any moderately tempered American to seriously consider the prospect of civil war, much less the founding of a breakaway republic. But this happened, and it was that broken nation Abraham Lincoln would seek to repair through the entirety of his presidency. It's an epic tale, no matter how you tell it, so we'll try to be practical. We'll take the Lincoln White House in three parts. Today, we'll discuss his political rise to national prominence, and then how it went for him as president within the White House against the backdrop of a torturous war. Then we'll dive into the war in the next time, and finally we'll discuss his last days and legacy. For now, it's early days, and for this, we're speaking with the accomplished author of several books about Abraham Lincoln, professor of civil war at Dickinson College, Matthew Pinsker. Hello, sir. Honored to be with you. Thanks. It's good to be here. He's a mountain of a man, Abe Lincoln, so let's strap on the boots and climb. One of the many enigmas of this historic giant first U.S. president not from one of the original colonies, from a log cabin in Kentucky of all places, no formal education, no family connections, or inherited wealth. To what do we attribute this man's uh, remarkable ambition? What was the calling he heard? It's so hard to answer that question with any kind of certainty. I mean, at the age of 23, with a year of formal schooling, basically unemployed, away from his family, Abraham Lincoln decides to run for his first public office. He's a candidate for the state legislature in Illinois. Yeah. How do you describe that ambition? And by the way, we don't really have any letters or diaries from that early period of his life. Mm -hmm. A couple of copybook verses when he was learning on his own, but nothing concrete, nothing contemporary. So you have to speculate. And if you look at the course of his career from that moment forward, from 1832 to 1860, he was just somebody who was a political animal, who yep. embraced the party system. He rose within 
two different parties, the Whig Party and the Republican Party, and he became a leader and a respected figure. And that's what made him president. There's a, an episode in his life, several of them, that I think are central to understanding the early Abraham Lincoln, and it was the river trips that he took down the Mississippi. And I think that those two journeys that he took as a young man, getting away from the tensions of his home, he had a, a hard relationship with his father. He saw the country from the inside out going down the Mississippi, first encounter with slavery, etc. But I also think that it drew him to what becomes the Whig Party and the interest in infrastructure and the, you know, how's this nation going to work as it expands? That seems to be the first inklings of his outlook on life, right? Or politics, I suppose. For sure. So uh, when we think of internal improvements, we usually think of railroads. But when Lincoln launches into politics, he brags about his experience on the rivers, you know, not only yeah. the trip down to New Orleans, but also his work as a flat boatman on the Sangamon River. He says it'll be cheaper and more effective for us to improve the dredging on the river than it will be to finance these ambitious railroad plans. And that's his campaign platform. Right. He enters politics as an expert on rivers. <laughs> that's interesting. He also patents something, doesn't he? He has an invention for getting over obstacles in the river, if I'm wrong, if I'm not... You're right, but it's interesting. That patent that he received, the invention was never actually developed, but the oh. patent that he received was for adjusting canal boats when they pass through locks. But what's interesting about that story is it tells you everything you need to know about Lincoln's mind. Not necessarily his ambition, but here is somebody with only that year of formal schooling who in his spare time as an adult, he got that patent when he was a uh, heading into Congress for the first time in his late 30s. So this is a man who got elected to Congress and then in his spare time worked in a wood shop in Springfield on an invention that he wanted to get patented. And he received that patent when he was a congressman. When he was a lawyer after his term in Congress, riding around the circuit in Illinois, he read the books of Euclid to learn more about geometry. Hmm. This guy is like an engineer in the making. And if you look at his political career, one of the attributes that made him successful before he became president is that he was like his own Karl Rove. He crunched the numbers. He looked at the data. He was a kind of data whiz. And it was important to him. He was always focused on numbers and details. He was very, very precise. I wanted to start out with that because I think people are so obviously caught up in the big stories of his Civil War years and that his presidency is so defined by so much of that. But he, as a man, I mean, this is a very smart person we're talking about, obviously, but his smarts were in other directions than what we're most familiar with or most people are familiar with. And that was to understand the nation and how it was growing and his own state. I mean, he was a very state-oriented guy, obviously. Everybody was in those days. But I think that's a very interesting and, and important part of him, that he's, he was a pragmatist, first and foremost. All true, except you have to balance everything with Lincoln. So mm -hmm. he comes out of Illinois as an adult, and he's focused on state issues. But right away, he's also a nationalist. You see that through his career as well. He's a pragmatist for sure. There's no doubt about it. But most politicians are. I mean, calling a politician mm -hmm. a pragmatist is like saying he speaks <laughs> in English, okay? Yeah, so, okay? But Lincoln is also a man of principle, and that's apparent early on, too. Yeah. So it's all about the balancing act between the different uh, facets of his personality and his political life. Let's talk about the Lyceum speech that he makes early days. Describe that speech, and I read it recently again for the 85th time in my life, but was moved again by seeing those principles emerge in this mind quite courageously at a time of real danger. 
So the 1830s was a turbulent time in American political life. It's the era of the Whigs and the Democrats, the uh, Andrew Jackson Democrats and the Henry Clay Whigs. But lurking beneath it all was the tumult over slavery and the the rise of abolitionism and the sort of growth of this pro-slavery extremism that hadn't really emerged before in American life. And there were, you know, violent episodes, riots, lynchings. And in 1838, Lincoln gives a speech where he says, we have to tamp down on the violence. He doesn't use specifics, but he invokes like the principles and the abstract ideas of the founding and law and order. And it's used as a a benchmark for like his early Whig views, but it's kind of eerie. He predicts the country might hurtle towards civil war at the hands of demagogues who prey on people's fears and resentments. And of course, when you read it now, it looks like you know a warning to the coming civil war generation. And frankly, it looks like a warning to us. He says, yeah. you know, if America is to be destroyed, it won't be from without, it'll be from within. Unfortunately, that's a relevant warning today. Sure is. It also speaks to his uh, incredible speech giving, which will become his oratory uh, throughout his life. You see it already at that young age. He has a magic with words. So we see the beauty and majesty of his oratory, but not all of his contemporaries did. What we love about Lincoln as a writer and a speaker is that he's plain. He uses common words and terms. But in his own day, he was not considered the greatest speaker in Illinois, in Springfield. He wasn't considered uh, you know, flowery enough. In many ways, what made him successful was a combination of things. It was yeah. the plain-spoken debating style that a lot of people appreciated and that we love, um, but also the behind-the-scenes mastery and the hard work and the effort. He was both a show horse and a workhorse, and very yeah. few politicians are, and that's the magic to his rise. We've discussed so much on this show what happened in Kansas, you know, under these previous administrations. That's really what he's watching as he comes up in this presidential run. What is the bleeding Kansas situation, all of what's been going on, is a scary, scary prospect for this country. And he's taken that temperature, isn't he? There are a couple of important things to say. So first of all, when the violence erupts in Kansas, John Brown goes out to the territory to be with his sons, and he forms an army. You know, they're, they're ready to do battle. When Lincoln sees that violence uh, erupting in Kansas, he forms a political party. Or this is the period of time when Lincoln is trying to, to organize the Republicans in Illinois between 1854 and 1856. He's a forerunner and a pioneer in that effort, but it's mostly behind the scenes. Mm. But the reason why he's so committed to it is because he sees the potential violence and danger to the Republic from the fight over slavery. And he wants to be pragmatic, but also principled. And he wants to avoid violence like he predicted in the Lyceum Address. And so he organizes for the first time in American history, a major sectional party that can achieve national power. He is a part of that effort and committed to it. And then the second thing I would say is that once Bleeding Kansas truly erupted and there was this real sense that Stephen Douglas's popular sovereignty principles were at stake. Remember, Douglas was the Democrat who was Lincoln's great rival who had pushed for the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, letting people in the territories in the former Louisiana Purchase decide the fate of slavery for themselves. When that became clear that it was degenerating into violence, the president of the United States, James Buchanan, who was a Democrat, 
He tried to force the Democratic Party to accept what was basically a fraudulent effort to protect mm-hmm. slaveholders. It was called the Lecompton Constitution. Sure. And in 1857, Douglas refused to accept that arrangement. And he and Buchanan had a feud that split the Democratic Party. Hmm. This is going to be the precursor to the division between Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats in 1860. But when Douglas and Buchanan's feud erupted over the future of Kansas, Republicans in the East wanted to make Douglas a a Republican. They wanted Hmm. to rally around him like a party switcher. And Abraham Lincoln said no. And Abraham Lincoln led the Republicans in Illinois, and that's why they nominated him for U.S. Senate in 1858. Back then, there were no popular elections for U.S. Senate. It was the legislatures that selected them. There was never a history of public debates between Senate candidates. There were no such things. Hmm. But the Republicans in Illinois rallied around Lincoln, tried to stop the Eastern establishment from forcing Douglas down their throat. The Lincoln-Douglas debates followed. And that's the story of Lincoln's escalation into the national orbit. So much of the discussion about Civil War time and Lincoln is about the state's rights and all that language. How much was that the language of the times? And how much did the new Republican Party and Lincoln embrace this idea of a federal governance taking charge over situations like this? Was it already the vernacular in those days? States' rights. By the way, they used the singular back then. They said state rights. Hmm. State rights was everyone's vernacular. And here's what we forget. Okay, northern states were just as protective of their state rights as southern states. And in fact, for most of the 1850s, it was the federal government that was supporting the slaveholders in the southern states. So the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, the Dred Scott decision in 1857, and it was northern states and their personal liberty laws, their anti-kidnapping statutes that -hmm. were at the heart of the debate. In the South, they accused northern states like Wisconsin of nullifying the Fugitive Slave Law. And there was a battle royal that is part of the secession crisis. When southern states seceded, starting with South Carolina in 1860, first and foremost, they would cite the refusal of northern states to enforce federal law to return the fugitive slaves. And Abraham Lincoln tried to avoid that issue because he knew it was a vulnerable one for Republicans. That's why he focused everyone on containing slavery in the Western territories, because he knew that if they debated whether or not the federal government was supreme over the issue of the fugitive slave law, they would lose most moderates and swing voters. And he was determined to try to minimize that political damage. Mm Mm-hmm. I stated at the outset, we're going to focus mostly on the presidential years, but I am so tempted to go into those debates at this point and sort of lay out how he was meteorically rising at this point by those standards in the day. Suddenly he's in New York, he's doing speeches at the Cooper Union, he's becoming a very big star in the firmament of U.S. politics on the federal level. It's a very interesting thing, and it really starts, I guess, with those debates, right? It actually predates them. As important as those debates were, there's no doubt they bring him into a national public consciousness. But behind the scenes, Republicans knew who Lincoln was. He was the Illinois State Party boss. He had organized the anti-Nebraska effort in the fall of 1854. 
They had won control of the legislature. They had won control of the congressional delegation. And then he helped make the first Republican U.S. senator in Illinois, Lyman Trumbull, in 1855. At the first Republican National Convention in 1856, he almost became this party's vice presidential nominee. And by 1857, he's already engaging in public clashes with Stephen Douglas that is bringing him to national attention. So yeah. it's like everything else in history. We, we remember the turning points, but it oversimplifies the precursors and the consequences. So it was a long process, but he was a powerful, notable figure for many years before he became president. There's a kind of myth that he was obscure. Among political insiders, he was well-known. Interesting. And it harkens back to that original question. You know, where does this dominance come from in this guy that has, by all appearances, a very simple background and therefore wouldn't have the, the framework, you know, to be a Henry Clay or somebody like that? He's just going on his instincts and his abilities. That seems to be the case. I don't think it was just instincts and abilities. It was experience. I mean, yeah. he gained so much experience building the Whig Party and then building the Republican Party. And I can give you a thousand examples of this, but I'll give you one because I think it's really telling, especially for anybody who has seen the Lincoln movie. Yeah. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Lincoln movie, you know that Lincoln is the star of this effort, but the kind of antagonist but anti-hero of the movie is Thaddeus Stevens. And they pit Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens debating over how to get the 13th Amendment passed mm. to the U.S. Constitution. Well, Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens met for the first time in 1848 at the Whig National Convention in Philadelphia. Mm. Lincoln shows up at the convention. He's a congressman, a first-term congressman, and he is committed to electing Zachary Taylor. He has been supporting him all along, which is a notable thing because... Henry Clay was Zachary Taylor's opponent for the nomination, and Lincoln had always been identified as a Henry Clay Whig. Mm -hmm. But he wanted the Whig party to win, and he thought Taylor was the guy. He meets Thaddeus Stevens for the first time at this convention with 10,000 other people. And then in the summer, he writes Thaddeus Stevens a letter. They met once. Stevens is just an attorney, but Lincoln knows this guy understands politics and he's going to be helpful. And even though Lincoln is a one-term congressman from Springfield, Illinois, he writes Stevens a letter and says, how does it look in Pennsylvania? What mm. can we do to help the campaign? And Stevens responds and they engage in this kind of mutual flattery. But to me, it's like an example of somebody who's working his Rolodex, networking, committing to a national vision, even though he's just a local first-term congressman. And you ask yourself again and again, where does that come from? Where does that drive come from? And you could say it's instinct, or you could say it's natural ability. But what I am arguing is that over the course of his career, he is learning from experience that that's the kind of work you have to put in Very to good. build a party, win elections, and succeed. The factionalism of the Democratic Party really sets the table for this election, which is essentially split. And that's really what gets Lincoln into office, correct? Right. The Democratic Party splits before the country splits into a northern and a southern wing. Northerners led by Douglas. Southerners basically managed by Buchanan, but his vice president is their nominee, John Breckinridge. And then there is a fourth party that emerges the Constitutional Unionists, they're like the old line Whigs who are trying to forge a compromise. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, the last party is the Lincoln-led Republicans. It's a four-way race mm-hmm. that creates all kinds of complexities. But because the Democrats have split, and because the Republicans are so powerful in the free states, from the beginning, Lincoln thinks they're going to win, and most Republican insiders feel like they have the edge and that they just have to turn out their vote and they will secure victory. How much were the Southern states convinced that Lincoln would be the instigating event to them seceding, et cetera? How much did they identify that throughout the campaign? You see certain types of extremists, they call them fire eaters, warning from the beginning of the race that if the Republicans prevail, Southerners can't accept it. But there are 15 slave states in 1860, and after Lincoln and the Republicans win, only seven of them secede, starting with South Carolina. So a majority of the slave states don't have a majority in favor of secession until after Sumter. And uh, the firing on Sumter and Lincoln's reaction to it drives four more into the Confederacy. But Mm -hmm. basically, it's a victory for Lincoln between his inaugural address and his actions in quelling the resistance in Charleston, he manages to split the remaining eight states. If he had lost all 15 slave states in 1861, the war would be over. The Union would fall. Washington itself would fall right away. And so it was a tough war. If he had managed to keep secession to the seven states, it would have been a far easier war. They probably would have quelched the secession crisis within a year. But It ended up to be a tough four-year battle. Tell me about the months between the election and the inauguration. So much happens. How much is Lincoln on the case at that point as a president-elect? The transition period shows Lincoln's mastery of behind-the-scenes politics. He is not speaking in public, but behind the scenes, he is telling Republicans that Tug has to come, and better now than any time hereafter. He preaches toughness, no compromise. Now, especially on the issue of containing slavery, not letting it expand westward. But on any other issue, if you look carefully at his positions, whether it's the fugitive slave law or any other of the potential areas of compromise, he's only offering symbolic conciliation, nothing of substance. And so there are proposals to amend the Constitution, spearheaded by a man named John Crittenden, There's this last-minute peace conference that you mentioned featuring former President John Tyler. Lincoln is indifferent to all of it. And by the way, he's not out alone on an island here. Most Republicans were opposed to these efforts at conciliation. What Lincoln said behind the scenes in private is, we won an election on the grounds that slavery is wrong, and we cannot concede that just because they threaten us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was tough. Uh, Most Republicans felt defiant. Um, But I want to point out, if Lincoln had been more human, you know, more predictable like most politicians are, in the face of that kind of resistance, he probably would have flip-flopped. He would have embraced some sort of Crittenden compromise. Some people view Lincoln as a kind of moderate who wasn't really committed to his anti-slavery beliefs. They don't see him as a true Republican. But I think his toughness behind the scenes during the secession crisis shows something that his law partner said to other abolitionists. His law partner, William Herndon, was an abolitionist. And Herndon told other abolitionists who had their doubts about Lincoln, he said to them, his heart is better than his platform. (laughs) And I think that captures Lincoln's position. He was a true committed anti-slavery politician 
but he was cautious in public about what he said and did because he understood that not everybody in the North, as part of that coalition, was as committed. By the time we get to the inauguration, let me just read a little piece from this. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve it, protect it, and defend it. He's really talking to the Southerners, isn't he? Well, we have to be precise. Lincoln was that engineer who had the patent. He's very precise. He would have looked at the math that we just talked about. There were 15 slave states. Seven had seceded. His real audience is the remaining eight states. He's trying to convince those remaining eight states not to secede. So he's using the secessionists as a foil. So he pretends to talk to them, but he's really talking to the rest who are watching from the sidelines. And in his original draft of the inaugural address, that paragraph that you read, he followed with a closing that was as stark as you could imagine. He ends with a question, shall it be peace or a sword? Mm. And he shows that draft to William Seward, his Secretary of State, and the man who most Republicans thought was going to be their nominee in 1860, the senator from New York. And Seward says, you cannot end with that. And he rewrites the closing offering like more conciliatory rhetoric. And Lincoln accepts that advice and adds that closing in with his own touches. This is the famous closing of the first inaugural, where he talks about appealing to the better angels of our nature Mm -hmm. and uh, the need to be friends and not enemies. Um, But Seward had also advised him to offer substantive compromise. And Lincoln refused to do that. He didn't offer any real substantive compromise. It was just a little bit of rhetorical outreach at the end, but the rest of it was tough. These are those first photographs you see of these inaugurations, and I don't know if it's the second one or the first one that he's standing on the Capitol and you're surrounded by just thousands of people. I always wondered how they got the message out, you know, how you were even heard in those crowds, much less get these ideas out there. I guess the papers were just sitting there waiting and took the copy just like they do now and and off it went. But it's an extraordinary kind of obscure fact of the times. It's true, but we sometimes overestimate how good our communication is today. Just because (laughs) they didn't have Twitter or phones doesn't mean they couldn't communicate. So like uh, you might remember the famous story about the little girl who wrote Abraham Lincoln a letter during the 1860 campaign telling him his face was so thin and he should grow whiskers. Her name was Grace (laughs) Fidel. She wrote him that letter on October 15th. 1860, he responded on October 19th. I tell my students the mail was better then. They actually had faster mail delivery. People were more devoted to reading newspapers. And of course, they had a telegraph wire. And so the telegraph is instant communication. And we think we're the only ones who live in a 24-7 environment. But the telegraph was the most impressive leap forward in human communication technology in the history of the world. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. As I said at the outset, we're really focusing here on the presidential years and absent of that, the Civil War, which we're going to cover in another episode. So this might take some people by surprise. Obviously, Fort Sumter is attacked in the next month in, in April 1861. We're off and running on this war. But there are other issues that are on the table for Lincoln. And I want to talk about the Homestead Act, where that fell in his priorities, what it really meant, and how people were hearing about this. Well, what you have to remember is that during the 1850s, in the end stages of the Whig Party and the New Republican Party, they had a host of plans for the national economy that included a Homestead Act for farmers, land-grant colleges, the Transcontinental Railroad. They wanted to build on what they used to call Henry Clay's American system. This was about internal improvements, Mm -hmm. infrastructure in a variety of ways. They had this kind of Hamiltonian vision of a future in America that would be good for farmers, good for workers, create domestic industry and free labor. And the Democrats bottled it all up. They blocked it. They vetoed legislation when they had to. And so once the Southern Democrats seceded, the Northern Democratic Party was in an extreme minority and the Republicans controlled everything on Capitol Hill and they controlled the White House. And so immediately, the members of the wartime Congress began to push forward on all of these plans, most notably the Homestead Act, which is going to provide free land for farmers. And they adopt that in the spring of 1862, along with a number of other measures that are designed to create what one historian called a blueprint for modern society. Now, Lincoln supports all of this. He always has. But he's not actively engaged in lobbying for it the way that modern presidents do. You know, they didn't deliver State of the Union addresses in public to the joint sessions. They hadn't been doing that since Jefferson's day, and they wouldn't start doing that again until Woodrow Wilson became president. What Lincoln did was he would send an annual message to Congress and a clerk would read it to them. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have, you know, Abraham Lincoln had a staff of two men at that time, working in the White House, living in the White House, sharing a bed together. That was his White House staff. (laughs) He was not a modern president the way we imagine presidents to behave, with a full retinue of staff pushing legislation through Congress. He devoted almost all of his time to managing the war, handling the slavery issue, which for him was central, and also dealing with the partisan back and forth of the wartime unionists. Mm -hmm. Everything else, Homestead and all the other domestic legislation, he pretty much delegated to Congress. Mm, I see. He had been a fighter against the Native American tribes outside in in his early days. How much did his outlook on indigenous populations affect the Homestead Act? Was he thinking about this? We don't think of him in those terms very often. 
Well, he didn't think of himself as a fighter. He used to joke about his experience in the Black Hawk War. He was a volunteer captain of a militia unit. He said, the mm. only thing I killed were mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, he never actually saw real combat. Right. So he served for a few months. He was not a military man by any means. But you're right. During the war, Native American issues, that was central in some areas. It wasn't his focus, but he dealt with Indian delegations. There was an uprising in the Minnesota area that involved the Dakotas, where they had rounded up a number of warriors and they were threatening to execute hundreds of them. This is in the winter of 1862, in the middle of one of the worst parts of the war for Abraham Lincoln, right before he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And he sits down and goes through all the case files and commutes some of the death sentences. But they ended up executing 38 Sioux warriors as part of the retribution for this uprising. Mm -hmm. It's the largest mass execution in American history. He doesn't see himself as hostile to Native Americans. Most former Whigs had opposed Indian removal in the Jacksonian era. Lincoln had been a Whig. He had opposed Indian removal. He participated in the Black Hawk War. That's the last war east of the Mississippi. But he wasn't really a committed soldier in that sense. It was more about frontier security. So you can argue that he's hostile, but doesn't acknowledge it, but he doesn't see himself that way. Gotcha. There's so much about the Whigs. I really like the Whig party <laughs> myself. It really feels to me. So much of that was about pragmatics of how to build a nation, including the Transcontinental Railroad, which is going to come along. And Lincoln's the first administration to really be dealing with that. But I want to get on to his big headline of this time, and that is as the great emancipator. Let's take the audience through the machinations of this. It begins much earlier than the famous date in January 1863. How does Lincoln start this process and really mark it out for us, please? Right away. As everyone should realize, if they understand anything about human nature, as soon as the war breaks out, enslaved people start running away. Mm. As soon as they can get close to Union lines, they know they can achieve freedom. And so they run away. Now, of course, they don't know it, you know, because the Union might not protect them. In theory, this is a war about suppressing a rebellion, not about ending slavery. But everybody suspects, everybody knows that the fight, the political fight is over slavery. And mm -hmm. enslaved peoples know this as well as anybody. And so enslaved people start to run behind Union lines in places like Fortress Monroe, Virginia, on the Virginia Peninsula. The Union uh, general in charge of that fort, Benjamin Butler, in the spring of 1861, refuses to return these enslaved men to the Confederate officer who claims them. This Confederate officer literally comes to the Union fort and says, return my fugitive slaves. Mm -hmm. And Butler declines to do so, gets clarification from the War Department that he doesn't have to, and the Northern press loves this. And so they start to call the runaway slaves contrabands of war, contrabands, mm -hmm. meaning like if you consider enslaved people to be human property, then it's a common practice in time of war to seize your enemy's property. And so no more return of fugitive slaves to rebel masters. This is immediately considered to be a stroke of political genius, and Northerners, at least anti-slavery Northerners, rally around this idea. Of course, you know, there are four border slave states like Kentucky and Missouri and Maryland and Delaware, and they, most of their political leaders oppose this because they're loyal slave states and they don't want anything to erode slavery. But it forces Congress to deal with it. 
And Congress starts to pass a series of laws called Confiscation Acts. They pass a Confiscation Act in the summer of 1861 and a second, more sweeping one in the summer of 1862. And both of those acts include provisions that essentially liberate and emancipate slaves. Hmm. And in fact, the second Confiscation Act is the direct trigger for Lincoln's emancipation policy. And what, what that means is, you know, most textbooks, most high school students, they don't know a thing about confiscation. They don't know or learn about Congress's role. Yep. I hope most people nowadays learn about the contrabands, the runaway slaves, and how people emancipated themselves. Mm -hmm. But the interregnum between enslaved people surrounding away and Congress taking action and then the president issuing his proclamation, that gets lost in the shuffle. And what everybody should understand, and what you said a minute ago is true, is that January 1st, 1863 was just one date in a mm -hmm. four-year process of liberation that occurred in different stages over time. That predates Lincoln. Well, the emancipation before emancipation begins while he's president in the oh, okay. spring of 1861. Of course, enslaved people mm -hmm. ran away before the war. Of course. And yes. they were freed, but it wasn't by legal means. Right. I'm thinking about the 1854 Peoria, Illinois speech that he makes presents the moral, legal, economic opposition to slavery. He really frames it out at that early time. I mean, obviously, this is all being discussed long before he comes along. A major flow of politics is going on at this time, and he's elected based on that. Let's clarify. Lincoln is elected as someone who says slavery is wrong, but he wants to contain its spread. He acknowledges that the Congress doesn't have the, the authority to abolish slavery in the states where it exists. Mm -hmm. This is conventional wisdom at the time. The Constitution had created a compromise. Those 15 slave states, Congress and the president could not abolish slavery there. They were going to have to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. And so that's how Lincoln balances his anti-slavery views with his constitutionalism. Mm -hmm. Now, during the war, everything changes. Because once there's a rebellion, then you can issue military orders, and you can have contrabands, and you can use a confiscation act that creates a new category. They called the enslaved runaways captives of war mm. and said they could be forever free. And then Lincoln issues his proclamation in 1863 that says every area in rebellion, all of those enslaved people will be free once the Union Army liberates them. And so, you know, the conditions change during wartime. Does he have a Congress that's behind him at this point? Republicans control the Congress and adamantly support anti-slavery policies. During that spring of 1862, when they're passing all of that domestic legislation, like the Homestead Act, they're also introducing and passing new articles of war that prevent the Union Army from returning fugitive slaves. They're approving treaties with the British that will further suppress the African slave trade, which is supposed to be illegal, but still happening uh, sporadically. Right. They abolish slavery in the territories officially, which if you remember your American history, that was the Wilmot Proviso, which mm -hmm. had been proposed during the Mexican War, but never adopted. They adopt it. They mm -hmm. pass a, a gradual abolition act in the District of Columbia. They promote all kinds of measures wherever they can to restrict, limit, and eventually abolish slavery. Now, there are a pro-slavery forces still in the Congress. It's not as if there's not critics of this, sure. but the majority is anti-slavery. And in fact, some people argue that they were pushing Lincoln. So the second Confiscation Act authorizes the president 
to issue a proclamation, that was the reason why it was the trigger for the Emancipation Proclamation. Some people don't think he would have issued that proclamation mm-hmm. unless Congress had adopted the Second Confiscation Act. There's a listener out there screaming, idiot, you forget the state seceded. I mean, all those people are gone from the Congress right now, right? All right. Those- the Southern Democratic votes are gone, so the Republicans control, and they're going to be so aggressive in promoting their agenda And then they're going to suffer some blowback because the military forces are stuck in such a stalemate that in 1862 and 63, during the midterm elections, they lose ground. And there's a fear at one point in the middle of the war that they're going to lose control of Congress. Mm -hmm. And so this is where Lincoln steps in and begins to try to really manage the issue and frame it so that they can create a union party. They're no longer calling themselves Republicans. They're calling themselves unionists. And they can co-op some war Democrats and some conservatives and create a patriotic coalition. But it's built around the idea that emancipation was a military necessity. And then by 1864, around the idea that the only way to end this war is to adopt the abolition of slavery through the 13th Amendment. The border states become so much of an issue for him. Everything is done with that block of states involved. You know, Delaware, Maryland, all those, I guess, former slave states at this point or present slave states? They are slave states throughout the Civil War. He pushes hard for the loyal slave states to abolish slavery voluntarily. So Maryland adopts abolition by referendum in 1864. He works behind the scenes hard to get Delaware to promote abolition, but they refuse. He can't get anywhere with Kentucky. They're holding on to slavery until the bitter end. And he pushes hard to get Missouri to adopt an abolition measure. It gets tied up in their own internal politics, but eventually, by 1865, Missouri moves to its own abolition. See, there are multiple channels for attacking slavery during the war. There's emancipation as a military decree, There's confiscation, which targets actual rebels, whether they're from border states like Kentucky or elsewhere. And then there's voluntary abolition, and he's pushing it all. Mm -hmm. But I want to underscore that because I think most people don't realize this, that even states that stayed with the North still practice slavery. That's a really important factor in understanding how delicate this operation was to be the president of this country at this time. It's insane. Right. And, you know, that weighs heavy on him in 1861 because of the math that we talked about. He's got to keep those four slave states in the Union. If they lose them, they lose the war. But by 1862 and 63, he's willing to push them hard on emancipation. And there's another component to emancipation that sometimes people forget. The proclamation did two things. It promised to liberate enslaved families in areas under rebellion but it also opened the door for black enlistment in the army. Now, there had already been black troops in the Union Army and the Union Navy, but the proclamation was the first time where Lincoln publicly accepted the idea that black people would be enrolled and serving in the army. And Mm -hmm. so what Lincoln started to do in 1862 and 63 and through the end of the war is he began to push the border states to allow their enslaved men to serve in the Union Army. And when they resisted, like in places like Kentucky, he overrode them. And Mm -hmm. eventually, by 1863 and 64, that shows you his real anti-slavery instincts as a Unionist. Mm -hmm. He says, 
Emancipation is a military necessity, and black soldiers are a patriotic necessity. Mm-hmm. We need to have them, even if the slaveholders who are loyal in the border states object to it. The season of this Emancipation Proclamation, which is delivered in January of 1863, really begins back in September. Am I right? He sort of floats the first version of this to his cabinet, and it's debated and discussed. Why does it take so long? Well, it takes even longer than that, because the Second Confiscation Act was adopted in July, Mm. on July 17th. And by the way, Lincoln was planning to veto it because he thought it went too far. It was unconstitutional. Congress can't authorize a military measure like that. And the way they did it in other ways was, in his view, unconstitutional. They talk him out of vetoing it, and he arranges a compromise with them on some of the matters of his legal concerns. But he issues his veto message with the law as a presidential signing statement, saying like, I'm signing this law, but here's where I think it's unconstitutional. And then a few days later, he drafts orders required by the new law, including the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which he reads to his cabinet, and they discuss over two days in the next week. But he keeps it private, because Mm -hmm. his cabinet officers, in particular William Seward, warn him that if they issue this proclamation in July of 1862, it'll look like the last shriek on retreat because they're losing ground in a key Eastern theater of combat. So Lincoln keeps it quiet and then announces it in public in September. That's what you're talking about Mm. after the Union victory at Antietam in Maryland and gives the Confederates 100 days notice that the proclamation will take effect on January 1st. But that notice was written into the original draft from July. He was always planning to launch it on January 1st, 1863. So it's a almost a full year of preparation before the proclamation was actually issued. Is it fair to call it an executive order as we hear today? Is that the term that would apply? Yes, it's a type of executive okay. order. It's a military proclamation. And that could not have been done in any other time than in wartime, right? Well, the courts had already ruled in the Dred Scott case and others that human property was like any other property and it could not be taken by Congress without due process. And so the only justification that was considered legal and might not even survive the Roger Tawney Supreme Court was military necessity. It had Mm -hmm. to be issued as an executive order by a president on the basis of necessity. Now, of course, if you think carefully about what I just said, When Lincoln decides not to issue the order in July of 1862, it was because they said, we're losing, and it'll look like the last shriek on retreat. But you would think that would be the ultimate example of military necessity. The more you lose, the more necessary it is. That's why behind this all, there's also political necessity. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to issue an order in what would look like political desperation. So they waited for some progress and momentum that they could rally people in the North around the idea that this was justified. And I would imagine worried that these border states would flip sides, right? It's true. They were worried about the border states. But in this case, I think by 1862 and three, um, what Lincoln is really worried about is resistance from Northern Democrats. Um, There's an anti-war movement brewing with uh, figures like Clement Vallandigham from Ohio. It's states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, maybe even New York where you know people are frustrated by the lack of progress in the war, by the sacrifices required. And emancipation is something that strikes at the heart of white prejudice in the North. 
So there are plenty of people in the North who don't like the idea of freedom for black people if it means equality for blacks. Right. The Democrats engage in all kinds of race baiting around that, and that, that's part of the reason why they win so many seats mm. in the 1862-63 midterms. You can't issue this proclamation and not know that the Constitution is going to have to change because of what you just said. The Dred Scott case forbade something like the Emancipation Proclamation from happening in normal life. So therefore, as soon as he's issuing this proclamation, everybody knows, first of all, the war has to be won. Secondly, the Constitution. This is the beginning of Reconstruction, right? Yes and no. It's certainly, they're talking about Reconstruction from the really the beginning of the war because the Union forces are occupying parts of the Southern rebellious states. But you're mm -hmm. right, it escalates during this. But what you're wrong about, perhaps, is that it's not as simple as it sounds. Yep. You can emancipate enslaved people and not abolish slavery. Mm -hmm. And you can do things in wartime that then bounce back and return to normal in peacetime. And there were some people arguing that slavery could continue in the loyal states. And even though you emancipated the slaves, the laws would remain on the books and slavery could come back to those reconstructed southern states. There were some people arguing for that. Right. But most people suspected that once you started on this pathway of emancipation, it had to result in abolition. But another complication is there are different ways to abolish slavery. And remember, from the beginning, the Republicans said Congress can't do it. It has to be done at the state level. And that's why Lincoln's pushing for abolition at the state level. But eventually, it was a remarkable group of women, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, who rally you know, hundreds of thousands of signatures on petitions in 1863 and 64, presented to the Congress, arguing for a new 13th Amendment to the Constitution that would abolish slavery everywhere, all at once, without compensation. And Lincoln did not stand in the way of that. And he eventually endorsed it. And the Congress, with those Republicans in control, now calling themselves unionists, they passed it in the Senate. And then after Lincoln won re-election and they won sweeping majorities in the future Congresses, before the last Congress left, that's when they mobilized to get the final support from the House of Representatives to support this 13th Amendment in January 1865. And it was sent to the states for ratification and became part of the Constitution in December of 1865. That amendment had been written before Lincoln died, obviously, right? He was thrilled by it. It was approved by the House in January of 65. According to the Constitution, presidents don't have any role in the constitutional process. It's the Congress that has to approve an amendment by two-thirds, and then it gets sent to the states with three-fourths required for ratification. Mm -hmm. But Lincoln was so supportive of the 13th Amendment that he signed it as if it was a law and right. sent it to the states with his approval. He didn't live to see it ratified, but he was an ardent supporter of the measure. That said, he was not an ardent supporter of full rights to black people. I mean, this was not his vision. They would not be serving on juries. They would not be running for public office. All of that is not part of this stage of Reconstruction, right? So people disagree. I don't see it that way. The way I see it, the way I explain it to my students is, just like Lincoln had been an anti-slavery politician before the war, but did not support the immediate abolition of slavery, so he was a cautious supporter of civil rights for black people because he knew that the Northern audience needed persuading. It could not happen all at once. So for example, like we said, he supported 
in the Emancipation Proclamation, the idea that black men could be soldiers. And then over the course of the war, he supported the idea that if black men could be soldiers, they should be paid the same as white men. It took time, but it happened. And then at the end of the war, he said, if black men have served as soldiers, they should have the right to vote. And so you can Mm -hmm. see what he's doing is he's preparing the ground for a hostile northern public to accept change. It's not immediate revolutionary change. It's reform over time. Now, that's why you call him a pragmatist. That's what pragmatists do. They make progress toward change. Mm -hmm. Now, in his heart of hearts, does he think that black people are inferior and should be excluded from equality? I don't believe so. But there are some people who do, and we argue over it. Yeah, right. It's an extraordinary story. We're skipping over a few parts, but we need to wrap this up. What you've done is opened a Pandora's box of understanding how complex this presidency really is. All presidencies are are complex, as we've been discovering in the previous 15. But when it gets to Lincoln, this is a mind and a spirit that is willing to embrace the fullness of the moment like no other president has to this point, and arguably since. It's an extraordinary thing. Do you favor the sort of mythology about this man? I mean, we go and see this humongous statue and the glorification of him. Does he stand up historically to what we believe of him? Look, Lincoln is a human. He made mistakes. He had doubts. But he's the greatest president in American history. His accomplishment was extraordinary. I can't imagine anybody else achieving it the way he did. His words and rhetoric last. And that's the American creed. And if you don't like Lincoln, I just don't think you like the American democratic experience. (laughs) There you go. Matthew Pinsker holds the Brian Pahunka Chair of Civil War History at Dickinson College. He teaches courses in U.S. political, legal, and diplomatic history. Is a long resume here. Author of two books, Abraham Lincoln, a volume in the American President's Reference Series from Congressional Quarterly Press, and Lincoln's Sanctuary, Abraham Lincoln and the Soldier's Home. Thank you so much, Matthew. I really appreciate your time and guiding me through the swamp of my mind where there is Abraham Lincoln. It's extraordinary facts. Thanks, Don. I appreciate being on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. You can find the rest of our Lincoln content as it drops in this series, wherever you found this one. Past episodes about Lincoln and the Civil War are also available. Don't be afraid to like, follow, and subscribe. Leave a nice review, even. It really helps. And have a look around at our episodic list. We cover a lot of history on American History Hit. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.